the name C.S. Lewis. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis or if you're aware of any of his books, you're probably aware of Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, or The Chronicles of Narnia. Those are the big ones that most people are aware of if they know of C.S. Lewis. Obviously, he wrote a bunch of other things, but one set of books that you may not be aware that he wrote is a space trilogy. Yes, he wrote sci-fi. It's true. It's called the Space Trilogy. There are three books in the Space Trilogy. And in this series, I'm two books into it. I've not read the third one. But in the series, there's a man uh, who's a professor named Elwin Ransom. And Elwin travels to Mars in the first book. And then he travels to Venus in the second book. And on both planets, he discovers intelligent life. The various forms, one is on Venus, they're humans, um, and on, on Mars, they're not humans, but they're intelligent, they're able to communicate, and all of that. And what's interesting about both of those worlds that he visits is neither of the worlds have been impacted by sin. Earth is the only planet in the solar system created by God that has been impacted by sin, but the other two planets haven't been impacted by sin yet. And most notably, when he goes to Venus, Venus is a much younger planet in the series than Earth is, and Venus is actually at the point where there's just one human couple on the planet, and he goes to the planet and interacts with that human couple. It's very interesting. And I won't give you the whole plot because I know you're going to go and buy the books and read them this week. <laughs> but what I do think is fascinating is I think it's really interesting that Lewis has to use a completely different planet to try to help us understand what life would be like without sin. It's an entirely different world than the world that we inhabit. For us, life without sin literally would be like living on a different planet. And it's hard to fathom. And in the books, there's so many little interactions that are so different because the intelligent life on these planets hasn't been colored and shaped by sin that it's, it's really interesting to think through and to process through. But in some ways, there are two chapters in the Bible that are almost like a different world for us. It's hard for us to enter into the reality of these chapters because they're not impacted by the fall into sin. Those chapters are Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. I mean, sin has tragically reshaped our experience of the world, and it's reshaped our experience of each other. And grasping what creation, what God intended for the man and the woman and for creation, grasping what that would be like and what that was like is very difficult for us. It's hard to, to see anything without it being colored by sin in our lives. And so these two chapters are totally unique to the rest of the Bible. I mean, every other chapter in the Bible is shaped by human beings who are sinful. Even if you go all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, there are sinful human beings who are being judged in those chapters. And so even though we're really looking at a different world in these chapters in a lot of ways, these chapters are very, very significant for us, and they shape the way we understand ourselves, and they teach us so much about God and who he is and about his purposes and plans 
for creation. And really, these chapters help us to understand sin as well. They help us to understand that sin is parasitic. It's a twisting. It's a bending of who we are and what we do. So I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 this morning. This begins the next section in this chapter, and really it begins the next section in the entire book of Genesis. Look at how it starts. These are the generations of. Now, this phrase is interesting in the book of Genesis. This phrase appears 10 times in the book, and each of these 10 times are are like a chapter heading in the book of Genesis. And so later on, you can go through and look for this phrase and where it appears But it's like Moses has broken up the book of Genesis into 10 unique chapters, and each of them tells a bit of the story. The next time that this phrase appears is in Genesis 5 and verse 1. And so what that tells us is from chapter 2 and verse 4 through the end of chapter 4, we have one unit. And so the author, Moses, wants us to read chapters 2, 3, and 4 together. Even though chapter 2 is utterly unique and there's no sin in this chapter, he wants us to read this chapter in conjunction with the fall in chapter 3. And what he wants to happen for us is he wants us to see the beauty and the goodness and the richness of God's gifts in creation, and then he wants to juxtapose that with chapter 3 in the fall into sin, so that you and I feel the weight and the tragedy of what happens in chapter 3. If you just jump into chapter 3, then you don't really understand fully the cosmic treason that is being committed in chapter 3 and the impact that that has on our lives today, because we're so used to it. It's so common for us to live in a sinful world. And so really, what we're doing this week and next week in chapter 2 is we're setting ourselves up to understand fully the impact of chapter 3. But as we're in chapter 2 today, what defines the creation before the fall is the way in which God consistently and overwhelmingly pours out his graciousness and his goodness and his gifts to the crown of his creation, which is mankind. You're going to see how benevolent and how lavish is his goodness to his people. I mean, I'm a father, I'm a sinful father, but I love to give good things to my children. It's fun, it's enjoyable. And in this chapter, we see God the Father giving good gifts in overwhelming abundance to his children. He's meeting every possible need that they have, and you can't read this chapter without just rejoicing in his lavishness and in his goodness. And so what this does for us is it gives us a foundational understanding of who God is. I mean, you read the Bible from front to back, right? You start at the beginning, and as you start at the beginning, you cannot help but be smacked in the face with the goodness and the graciousness of God. That's how he's presented. And so we'll get to chapter 3, but we're going to camp in chapter 2 today, and I'm going to give you an overview of this. And here's what we're going to see. Three gifts, not gifts, G-I-F-S, three, only the younger people would get that. Not gifts, gifts. Three gifts that God provides for mankind to fulfill his purposes. Three gifts that God provides for mankind 
to fulfill his purposes. And the first one of these gifts is creation. It's the whole of creation. So keep in mind that chapter 2, verse 4, we saw there the beginning of it, all the way through the end of chapter 2, this is the focused account of creation. Right? There are two accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter 1, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 3, is sort of the overview of creation. And then Moses narrows in and focuses on the creation of mankind. And so you can even see here that as he begins to focus on mankind, now you've got a change in the name for God that he uses. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. In chapter 1, he just called him God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. But in chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heavens. And so now, because he's focusing on man, he uses God's personal name that Israel would have known, Yahweh, and he's focusing and indicating, he's focusing on the fact that God has a unique and special relationship with human beings, with men. And so throughout this account, you see the gift of every other element of creation given to man, and you also see how the creation needs the man, needs human beings, needs leadership, and needs work and cultivation to be what it truly should be. And so God has set this up and displayed his goodness and the beauty of what he has made, and he has provided for all, both creation and for man, through these gifts. And so in chapter 1, the overview of creation, we really only saw God speak and create the man and the woman. We saw that he made human beings male. We saw that he made them female. And now in chapter 2, we begin to get an on-the-ground look at what it was like when Adam was initially created. This is fascinating. Look at verse 5. This is day 6. Here's what it says. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So, God's going to create the man on day six, but here, this gives us a little bit of background, what it was like as he was created, right before he was created. Now, when you read these and you see that there's no bush of the field and no small plant, and it's day six, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought God already created plants on day three. So why is he saying that there's no plants here? Well, this particular description is not talking about the entire earth. It's talking about one section of the earth where man was created. It's talking about the land, as you'll see in a few minutes, near Eden. Eden is a particular location, and near Eden is where man was first created. And it's not talking about every plant not being available. Here, it's specifically talking about the kind of plant that needs agricultural cultivation. There are certain plants that won't grow well and won't grow consistently unless you have human beings working those plants, working the ground, planting those in the right way, irrigating those, and all of that. I mean, notice what it says in verse 5. Moses makes this very clear to us. There were no plants. Why? Well, for one reason, God hadn't caused it to rain yet. But then look at the second reason. And there was no man to work the ground. There was no corn growing up. There was no wheat growing up. 
because there wasn't a man to cultivate it. And so this tells us that human beings were necessary. God has a particular plan for human beings when he puts them on the earth. The land is is a field. It's a plain. I mean, think of the Middle East. It's very arid and dry, and it needs someone to irrigate it. Look at verse 6. And a mist or a stream was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so what this is describing here is an underground stream that bubbles up at different times and floods the ground, but it's not consistently watering the ground. And so what you need is a human being to create ditches where the water will run and it will irrigate the plants and they will grow properly. So the man is necessary for this to happen. And so there's a need for someone to do this work. And that's when God creates the man. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, I'm sure you've read this before, but when you read this, understand that this is speaking of a great amount of care and concern for how God created the first man. It says that he formed the man. That word is used to speak of a potter forming a vessel out of clay, taking great care and tenderness and precision with how he creates that vessel. And that's exactly what God was doing here in creating the first man. It says here that human beings are made from dust out of the ground. And I don't often quote Hebrew words here, but this is really interesting. So the Hebrew word for man is Adam, which obviously you can see how Adam's name comes from that. It's Adam. But the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. And so the man comes out of the ground. He's created out of the ground. It shows the close connection that you and I have with the soil that we gain our sustenance from, that we exist from, and ultimately that we return to. Verse 7 speaks of God breathing into the man's nostrils the breath of life. This is a very intimate picture. It's something deeply personal. It's almost like a kiss of affection here, where God breathes into the man and causes him to become a living being. He's no longer inanimate. Now he's a living being made in God's image, who God has taken special care and concern to create. So God tenderly creates man out of his affection, made in his image, but notice the environment in which he places him. Again, you can see God's goodness just flowing out over this passage. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So Eden is a region, and God planted a garden in the region of Eden, and then he had created the man outside of this garden and outside of Eden, and he placed the man in this garden. Why? Look at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. What an amazing place and what gifts that God gives to this man. It's a habitat that is rich in visual pleasures. It was a delight to walk around this garden. 
And there are loads of good things to eat growing on these trees. So think of this garden as enclosed by a hedge. It's a specific area in which God puts the man with all of these gifts available to him. There are magnificent trees and beautiful flowers. And at the center of the garden, there are two very significant trees. Look at the rest of verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so you can see here that the tree of life is in the center of the garden, but you learn in chapter 3 and verse 3 that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also in the middle of the garden. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that these trees were right next to each other in the center of the garden of Eden. Now, what was the tree of life? Well, if you think through the whole of Scripture, you know that trees are used as symbols of life and vitality. Think about Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1, I think it's echoing the garden here where it speaks about the tree. It says, The man who meditates on Scripture will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. And that tree is flourishing and doing well. It's alive, and it's very evident that it's alive. It's beautiful. We also know that in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God expelled them from the garden in order to keep them from eating of the tree of life. Because then they would live forever in their sinful state. And so the tree of life was a gift from God to be enjoyed by an obedient Adam and Eve in order to sustain life. What about the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We'll get to that one when it's mentioned again in verse 17. So I'll hold off on that for a moment. But now in the passage, in describing the gift of God in creation, now you have this little aside here that Moses gives us to further describe the area in which the garden is planted and what's involved in the garden. Verses 10 through 14. Look at this. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, so it flows out of the region of Eden through the garden that God planted in Eden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So after it passes through the garden, it splits and goes into four rivers, and Moses names them. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so if you look at these, we know where two of these rivers are, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We don't know much about the other two. But the point here is that you can see that the land that God has created here is rich with gemstones and precious metals, gold and onyx. And so the point of this little aside here from Moses is to say God has provided unbelievably for the man that he has created. He's given him a beautiful environment, rich with good food, beautiful trees, and every possible material want and delight that he could think of. He's given to him. And so if we just back up a little bit from this, we understand in our lives, despite the fall, the natural world is given to us as a gift from God. It's a good gift to be enjoyed by us. And as we enjoy the natural world, it 
should point us back to the one who created it. And we should look around and be awed by what we see, and then we should look upward to the magnificent hand of the one that created all of those things. They reflect him. And so we praise the artist for what he's done. Now, this is a pretty pretty nice-sounding existence here in the, the garden as God places the man here. And I don't know what your picture of life in the garden is. I don't know if you picture life in the garden as sort of this lounging around, you know, lazy, workless existence where you're just plucking fruit off of the tree and eating it and then taking a nap, right? Like, I, I don't know what, what you think of when you think of the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't like that per se. In fact, God gives the man a, a purpose and the good gift of a task that he is supposed to accomplish. And that's our second gift that God gives. It's a commission in verses 15 through 17. So what you have here, the task that we're going to talk through in these verses, this is the specific beginning of the big task that we saw in chapter 1. Remember that? The task was to subdue the earth, take dominion over the earth, and fill it with image bearers, all for the honor and praise of God. Well, this is the starting point for that. And so what this means is Adam and Eve were to start here in the garden, cultivate the garden, and then as more image bearers were born, they were to spread out and cultivate and subdue the whole earth and in many ways make it like the garden. Make it a place where God would dwell with man and walk with man and have a relationship with man like a temple where they would meet together. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, two jobs, to work it and keep it. These two words are used, interestingly enough, together to talk about the job of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. And so Adam was like a priest here in a temple where God would dwell with man, and he was to serve God in this temple. The word work can mean to till the ground. So he was supposed to work the ground, cultivate the garden. But it can also speak of serving another person, like the priests serve God in the temple. And that's what Adam was to do. There's another part to this task, though. He is to keep the garden. This means to guard. The priests were to guard and protect the tabernacle and the elements of worship in the tabernacle and the temple. And Adam was to guard the garden here. And you might be thinking, it's a sinless world. Why? Why would he have to guard the garden? Well, if you go forward to chapter 3, one of the first problems and failures of Adam is that he lets the serpent into the garden, doesn't fulfill his task here, and the serpent is able to tempt his wife and ultimately him. He doesn't keep the temple of God free from an unclean intruder. Now, he has two tasks here, to work and keep the garden, beginning there, spread out over the world, but God gives him a command as well. And I want you to notice how this command is phrased. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We often think of commands as negative, don't we? 
But the way this is phrased is God says, you can, you can do everything. You can eat of any tree. His goodness is on display here. His liberality is on display. You can eat of anything in the garden. I want you to enjoy this. That's the starting point for God's command. But there's only one tree, only one, that you can't partake of. Enjoy the beautiful gifts that I have given you, but I need to give you a warning. There is one tree that I'm going to restrict you from. One tree in the whole garden. And, and, and we think God is, is overbearing and negative, and we think his commands are legalistic and hard. And God's like, I, I want you to enjoy this, and I'm giving you this one command to keep you from evil. God's command here is like telling someone that they can't open the emergency exit and jump out of the plane without a parachute. But what you can do is you can sit in this plane and enjoy your ride comfortably and read a book, take a nap, and enjoy the food as much as you can enjoy airplane food. But the point is the commands are for man's good and for his enjoyment and for his freedom. You don't have a lot of freedom when you're plunging to your death outside of an airplane. You may feel free for a moment, but that ends pretty quickly. And that's what God's command is here. And I think this sets the tone for the rest of Scripture when God gives a command. It's not overbearing. It's not legalistic. It's for our good and our flourishing. Now, this commission and these commands here set and establish the relationship between God and human beings. And what does this tell us? God is the sovereign. He's in charge. He's the ruler. And humans are to obey his word and his command without question. That's our place. That's what we do. But when we obey, there are sweet and good results. And they would have partaken of the tree of life and existed forever in relationship with God. But if they don't obey, there are consequences. Look again at verse 17. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely very strong language, you shall surely die. Death is the result. Now, I think here that the death that he's talking about, specifically that God's promising, is a spiritual death. I think what he's saying is your relationship with me will be fractured. And of course, that has implications for physical life, and physical death would come as a result. But God goes to great lengths here to say, in the day, that you do this, the very day that you do this, the same 24-hour period, this consequence will happen to you the day that you sin. So what was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was the warning here supposed to keep them from? What would eating of this fruit give to Adam and Eve? Well, I don't think the eating of the fruit would give them moral discernment. I don't think it was knowing the difference between right and wrong because they were to know the difference between right and wrong just by the fact that God told them not to eat it. It's a command. Obeying God's command was good. Disobeying was evil. They knew what they weren't supposed to do and what they were supposed to do. 
I think the rest of this passage or in chapter 3 sheds some light on this. Chapter 3 and verse 6 says that the tree or the fruit was desired to make one wise. And then chapter 3 and verse 22 tells us that eating had made them like God in some way. And so I think what's happening here is that eating of this fruit, as we'll look more in coming weeks, but eating of this fruit results in gaining knowledge and wisdom on man's terms rather than God's. So wisdom is a good thing. It's to be sought by human beings. But what does Proverbs tell us is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. It's the reverence of God. It's submission to who he is. And when we pursue knowledge and understanding and wisdom on our own terms and in our own way and without fearing the Lord, then we have put ourselves in the place of God. And we're deciding what is right in that moment. And we're in a position of moral autonomy, trying to live apart from God and his authority and his rule. And so rather than fearing God, they, by eating of this fruit, would be saying, God, I know better than you do. I'm more wise than you are. I have more understanding than you are. And and this is good, even though you've told me not to do it. So that's what the tree, I think, of knowledge of good and evil is. So this whole section here, 15 through 17, I think what you have is God establishing a covenant relationship with the first man here. Now, it's not a covenant of works. It's a gracious covenant where man obeys God out of love and out of trust in him. Now, one more thing to note about this. This command is in the singular. It's given to Adam and him alone. Now, of course, these instructions were to go to the woman as well and to anyone else who was born into the world. But the fact that it's in the singular, I think, tells us that Adam is the representative head of the human race. What he does impacts everyone else. He's the representative for all of humanity. The command goes to him. The relationship is established. The covenant is established with him. And I think this is where the Apostle Paul gets his theology in Romans 5 of the first Adam and the last Adam. And so we all stand condemned because our representative head chose to have moral autonomy and think he knew better than God, but... In Romans 5, if we're united with Jesus Christ, if he becomes our representative head, then we receive all the benefits and all the gifts that we have spiritually because of him. I think that comes from this passage. What happens to him happens to all of us. So are you in Adam this morning or are you in Christ? There's only really two human beings. Which one are you connected to this morning? One brings death, one brings life, as he represents you. Now, to be a representative head, there had to be other human beings, right? And that's our last gift. And I think this might be the best one, companion, verses 18 to 25. So up until this point, everything has been declared good. You saw this throughout. It was a refrain, a rhythm to chapter 1, 
God saw that it was good. And then at the end of chapter one, he saw that it was very good. Everything's been good, beautiful, pleasurable. But look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's jarring to read this in this passage because it's so different from anything that we've read so far. And I want you to notice here, it's not the man complaining about his situation that causes God to respond. It's God making note of this and identifying that it's not good that the man should live alone. And God is going to be the one to remedy that situation. Look at the rest of verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. So there are two descriptions of what God will create here. First, he says he's going to create a helper. A helper is not inferior. A helper is not subordinate. This word for helper is used of God helping Israel. So we're not talking about a lesser companion here. We're talking about an equal. The idea here in helper is that the man is incomplete as he is. He's not bad, he's not sinful, but he's incomplete. He doesn't have everything that he needs, and this helper will fill in the gaps. It'll make him complete. And this doesn't just apply to the helper's ability to bear children and fill the earth. She will be his companion, she will be his delight, and she will be his joy. She will be his helper. But the second thing God says is that she will be, or whatever he will create at this point in the narrative, will be fit for him. And that means suitable for him. There will be a correspondence between the man and the helper. They will stand as equals in the eyes of God, but they will not be the same in every way. They will fit together. They will go together. They will play different roles in the task at hand, but they will work together. She will be suitable for him, fitting for him, a complement to him. Now, the way this narrative moves is just fantastic because God doesn't immediately create this helper. It's like he wants to build the suspense of what's to come. And so look what he does in verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So rather than creating this helper, God parades all of these animals in front of Adam and has him name them. This experience is a little bit like when you're headed to a restaurant and you're very, very hungry and the people around you keep talking about food and you are more and more eagerly anticipating getting to the restaurant. I think that's what's going on with Adam here and I think that's what you and I are supposed to feel as we read this. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field and here's why God did this. But for the man, for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. God wants to pinpoint the aloneness of the man here. And he does this so that we can feel the rush of joy that the man experiences when his helper arrives on the scene. 
That's why he says what he says at the end of verse 20. There was not found a helper suitable for him. And so now, when the suspense has been built, now God acts. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now I know it says ribs. It's probably better translated side than specifically a rib. And the purpose of this is to show that she is of the same substance as the man. She's out of his side. You'll see in verse 23, she is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. They correspond to each other. They're, they're working together. They're equals in the eyes of God, even though they're not the same. They have distinct roles in the task that God gives, but they correspond to each other. And so after this happens, God goes to work, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He goes to work, and nothing else like this has happened in the creation story so far. God uses tender care and concern in building this woman into an ideal companion for the man. And I love this. Notice what he does at the end of verse 22. And brought her to the man. God introduces them. God does the matchmaking here. This is magnificent. He brings the helper to Adam. He presents her to Adam as a gift for him. She's his partner and companion, and she is specially crafted by God with care and affection to complement him. So how does Adam respond to this? Verse 23, this is the first poem the first love song, let's say it that way. It's the first love song in all of human history. This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Another author translated it this way, and I love this. This, this time, because Adam has just experienced all of creation being paraded in front of him and there was not found a helper suitable for him. And he says, upon waking up and having God present his helper to him, he says this, this time, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this shall be called woman, for from man was taken this. He's clearly delighted, and rightfully so. God's work has been completed. The man has all that he needs to accomplish the task that God has for he and his wife together. He's been given a beautiful place to live, a purpose for his existence, a way of serving his creator. He's been given a companion that blows his mind, so much so that the very sight of her causes him to burst forth into poetry and a love song. And as you get to this point in the story, I mean, God is the giver of all good gifts. How consistently does he do this? He is generous and lavish and kind. Of course, the chapter doesn't end there. Now you've got the narrator's comment preparing you for the rest of Scripture. This is the foundation. This moment is the foundation of every human marriage. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we're going to look in more detail at this next week. We're going to go back here and talk about marriage, its significance, 
and what this passage teaches us and how it sets the foundation for the rest of Scripture here. But verse 25 begins the transition to the tragedy of chapter 3. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were free from sin. There was no guilt causing shame. They were in happy communion with one another. Of course, they were, they were naked and they were together in a sexual sense, but there were no emotional difficulties between them. There was no conflict between them. There was no bitterness or, or bad feelings being harbored between them. They were together in one accord, enjoying their relationship with one another and enjoying their relationship with God. And so this entire passage, God showers good gifts on the first man and the first woman here. And so if you only had ever read these two chapters of the Bible, if you were picking it up for the first time and you started here, what would your opinion of God be? He would be shockingly generous to human beings. Unfathomable that the divine would give gifts like this to his creatures and that he would help them and provide for them and give them all of these things. And that would be your opinion of God. And so when you read this, you have to ask the question, has God changed? After Genesis 3, did God change? Is he somehow different now than this presentation here in chapters 1 and 2? The resounding answer has to be no. He's not any different. So what changed? We changed. We're different now. In dramatic ways, you and I are different than the man and the woman here. And so what that means for us is, if God hasn't changed, but you and I have changed, it means that when we doubt the goodness of God, that God is not indicted by that. He hasn't become less than good. When we think God is not trustworthy, when we fail to rely on him and bank on him totally, it's not because he is not trustworthy and he's not a sure hand. When we think that the commands of his word aren't worthy to be obeyed, the issue is not the commands. The commands are given out of love and goodness to us. The issue is us. In the C.S. Lewis books that I talked about at the beginning, human beings from earth are described by the other creatures as bent ones. They're not as they should be. They're off. They're bent. They don't see things right. And that's us. He's loving. He's good. He's the unchangeable God who gives good gifts, and that is still true today. And so we should trust him and serve him and love him with all that we have. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your goodness. It is most clearly displayed to us through the gift of your Son. Despite our rebellion, despite our sin, despite being bent and broken, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to 
redeem us, to buy us back from sin, to win the victory over sin, for Jesus to die in our place on our behalf so that we could have all the benefits of our representative head. Your love is displayed to us through that, and we thank you for that reality. You are good. Impress that on us now, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.